Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to, I mean, you guys said you didn't even notice, but we, the office, the Law360 New York Bureau, uh, crossed a sort of uh, a New York City sort of milestone they were filming Law and Order SVU just outside the office yesterday. I I still watch that show, um, you know, despite the fact that it's been on what like twenty one or twenty two seasons. Yeah, right. So I can't wait to see an episode where it's like, oh, I work there. I just thought it was a huge extended shoot of uh, say yes to the dress. I didn't know if you were going to say that. Yes, it, we- it, it might not be. <laughs> the, the listeners might not know that we work directly above the Kleinfeld bridal that is featured on Say Yes to the Dress, which is on what. Uh, TLC. Oh, TLC. There you there go. And, and we do see a lot of yeah. um, equipment oh, yeah. and, and, you know, yeah. I'm certainly in shots where I'm like walking that. through with a coffee looking <laughs> angry. And... Uh, yeah. So the, it's, it, it's, it's no big surprise that, that someone would be shooting out there, but I saw the like, little placard as Law and Order SVU. Great. I, I gave half a thought to trying to find uh, Ice T's trailer and ask him if he wanted to come on Pro Se. We oh. have long wanted him on the show. Yeah. Is that where? So I got lunch at this, it said craft services, and it was just out there. I didn't know. I thought it was. A new restaurant or something. Like, the sandwich was really good, and they didn't charge me. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. Um, yeah. Well, we have a good show this week. Uh, yeah, we're gonna have a host. just us host <laughs> show. Um, yeah. We do this periodically. I think loyal listeners will know this. Whenever we have so much news that we feel really like pressed to get it all into the show, we yeah. usually just bat around some of these big stories. Just yeah. the three of us. And we're gonna start with Roger Stone. Yes, finally graduated from top of show patter to to a to a real segment. Well, it's sort of, I mean, with it, it's as we will certainly get into here, it is a uh, fact heavy yeah. uh, sort of story where things are changing constantly. And yeah. it's sort of been difficult to dive in. But And um, there was a coalescing of a couple of different things this week that are that are instructed right. to so, talk about. So we mentioned it at the very up top of last show that on Thursday, Stone was sentenced to three years and four months in prison for uh, obstructing the probes into um, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, the sentencing of, of a um, sort of a famous political operative who is also tied very closely to the sitting president yeah. uh, was always going to be a big deal. But um, this one has sort of you know, right before the sentencing and then in the week since has been uh, it, it it got weird. Yeah. You they 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 made it weird again. Yeah. <laughs> well, since they did make it weird and there have been so many stories about it, let's do the Cliff Notes version. Tell people what they need to know. So there's there's no cliff notes to be had on Roger Stone. You gotta go you gotta dive into the whole thing yeah, uh, yeah. if you if you want those details. But um but let's – so we'll start with earlier this month, um, federal prosecutors leading up to – he had already been convicted and um, federal prosecutors were um, – they filed a sentencing memo asking for seven to nine years in prison. Yeah. That was based on guidelines and certain enhancements because um, they pointed to a variety of different things that would lead to these enhancements under the guidelines, one of which was that Stone uh, had had threatened physical harm to a witness. and. Yeah. Various other things that that drive up that that those sentencing guidelines. So when this was reported, uh, President Trump, as he is wont to do, um, tweeted out his thoughts on it, said it was excessive and unfair and a miscarriage of justice and all that. So um, shortly after that all went down, the the senior officials at the Department of Justice reportedly intervened um, and filed a new memo in court, not seeking a specific shorter period of time, but asking for this generally more lenient sentence than the original one. 
Um, the whole thing sort of blew up at that point. It was uh, a big day for sentencing guideline Twitter, which <laughs> you really don't see that much. Um, four. Yeah, 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 it was a big deal. Career prosecutors uh-huh. withdrew from the case, one of whom uh, I, I believe resigned from the yeah. DOJ yeah. entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the main thrust here is that this is, you know, it probably doesn't need to be said, but that that um, the the accusation was that this was an improper intervention into, you know, the way that the the career prosecutors were dealing with it versus sort of the political end of it on behalf of someone who is tied very closely to the president himself. And when all that happened, we then got to this, uh, a lot of pundits were just then turning and saying, what will the judge do now that this has all happened? And we're on the other side of that. So, yeah, and, and you know, the, we have an independent judiciary and the judge was entitled to sort of um, look at look at these two competing things and, and come to her own conclusion. Um, it was interesting. On Thursday, the day of the sentence hearing, the, the prosecution showed up and sort of walked some of this back. The prosecutor who was left on the case after those withdrawals. Um, the guy's name was John Crabb Jr., who is the, um, the lead prosecutor on the case, and uh, he said during this hearing that, that Stone deserved, quote, substantial uh, prison time. Um, he praised the original team of federal prosecutors who had since resigned. He apologized for the confusion, the back and forth with the with the stuff. So, um, you know, a, a bit of contrition, a bit of sort of moving back to, you know, we don't think he should just get off or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, when all of that sort of when the dust settled from the Thursday hearing stone, as I mentioned at the up top, had been sentenced to 40 months in federal prison, which is, um, you know, not nine years, not the, sure. the, the uh, full extent that um, was called for in the original memo. But Certainly uh, not an easy thing to go to prison for 40 months. Yeah. Um, so as demonstrated, it, it it was weird. It remained weird. And then it got weirder. Uh, there was there were more developments sort of in the wake of the sentencing uh, that sort of elevated it even a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it, it's pretty typical that after something like this, you're going to file post-trial motions, post-sentencing motions, yeah. seeking you know, a new trial, sure. picking various uh, reasons why the the original sort of outcome um, needs to be redone. So Stone has filed those, but but as you alluded to, um, they are not super super typical. Um, yeah. The the thrust here is that the Stone folks believe that the four person of the jury, a woman who has since been publicly identified as Tamika Hart, um, showed that she was biased against Stone via these social media posts and and that then that she had covered up that bias during the kind of questioning the voir dire process yeah. that, that goes on before you pick a before you pick a a jury. Um, those claims have obviously then been sort of fanned by conservative media, by Twitter, by President Trump himself. Yeah. Um, so we saw, we had the hearing on Tuesday, sort of this very unusual hearing to dive into this stuff where um, Judge Amy Berman Jackson brought back um, brought back the jurors to uh, they had a closed door thing where um, uh, uh, Ms. Hart was there to sort of um, to to be asked questions about all this stuff but that was behind closed doors yeah. but there was a public thing before that and the judge was pretty clear that um, you know you get into real sort of fraught territory when you start, Throwing jurors' names around in public and yeah. saying that they were biased, especially in a case like this where, you know, everything is already so highly charged and and sort of it's very magnified. Yeah. yeah. So um, the quote from the judge was, "quote 
This is a highly publicized case and in a highly polarized political climate in which the president himself has shown a spotlight on the jury through his Twitter platform. I shouldn't have to explain this, but any attempts to invade the privacy of the jurors or to harass or intimidate them is completely antithetical to our process of justice. Yeah, I mean, you you spoke before about the importance of the and the existence of an impartial judiciary and this. I mean, you see it here. I mean, she's like sort of specifically saying there are, there are sort of extraordinary circumstances here that warrant my sort of alluding to them and saying why it's sort of definitely beyond the pale. Yeah. yeah and I feel like there's like two things going on. There's one um, that we don't want a system where people like won't turn up for jury duty because they sure. think their background and things they put on social media will be dug into and. Um, People certainly don't need get... another reason not to do jury well, right, duty. right, because I mean, yes. you can imagine that if you are, if you get the ire of certain groups, yeah. you might be doxxed online or, sure. or whatever. So people are not going to want to serve as jurors and that would cause real problems for our judicial system. Yeah, chilling effect. But then the opposite, uh, not the opposite, but then another thing that's a problem here, um, we've talked about this on the show before, you don't have to not have opinions to be a juror. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're biased. Yeah. If you agree to set those aside and listen to the facts and rule based on the law as it's set out by the judge and yeah. in the case, then mm-hmm. you're fine. You can have opinions. Yeah. yeah. So it's a fascinating situation. Uh, um, we will see the judge took uh, this stuff under advisement, um, but in a sort of surreal situation, um, President Trump responded almost in real time on Twitter to yeah. all this going on. Quote, there has rarely been a juror so tainted as the forewoman in the Roger Stone case. Look at her background. She never revealed her hatred of Trump and Stone. So, um, it, you know, yeah. it's 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 the world we live in right now. And um, it's a it's it's very interesting to see the president weighing in sort of in real time on on something that's going on like this. All right. Next, I would invite you guys into a thought exercise, if you can indulge me. Great. Picture yourself as a large and successful international law firm. Yeah, I got it. Are you picturing it? Yep. Okay. Now, are you several separate entities that exist in different countries unified under one corporate banner? Or are you like a monolithic one legal entity? This is like a corporate Rorschach test. Yeah, a little Um, bit. I Um, feel like I need to write the answer in a blue book. I know. Well, I mean, that is the question that is the reason I ask that is that 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 is at the centerpiece. uh, That that, that is the center, rather, of this um, uh, malpractice dispute uh, that saw uh, big law staple Dentons uh, slapped with a $32 million jury verdict early this month, which really kind of put the industry on high alert a little bit. So you are talking about how this firm is structured. How did that play into what's going on with this malpractice? Claim? Yes, you'll have to indul- you'll you'll have to indulge me uh, a slight digression into the intricacies of Swiss corporate law. Um, okay, <laughs> so Dentons is organized as what's known as a Verein. Okay, it's a Swiss Verein, and all that means basically is that if you are this international entity, mm-hmm. you can have all your international outposts be sort of legally and financially separate even as you are unified as a matter of branding and sort of corporate strategy. So as, as an example, sort of Denton's U.S. is distinctly different, is a legally and financially different entity than Denton's Canada. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. Okay. There are lots of reasons for him to choose to do this. Um, I was talking to Abra Coe, who wrote a great feature that kind of prompted our discussion. Um, a lot of it, it makes it easier to do some mergers, and it also... Uh, ostensibly is supposed to make it is supposed to allow you more flexibility in servicing clients uh, around the world. However, 
that matter of flexibility is is subject to different kinds of legal interpretations from time to yeah, time. Yeah, I remember when this when these were first, uh, you know, this was a big deal a couple years ago, like yeah. three or four years ago, when all these firms were were breaking out the Verine thing, and it yeah. was it was sort of Orwellian, where they were like, "We are different firms that are also the same firm." <laughs> it to was, be yeah. clear, we are the same firm that is also different. This is Schrodinger's like, law. What? Fir- this like, is yeah. This is Schrodinger's law firm. We are little <laughs> law firms inside the law firm. <laughs> Uh, and we're all one, but we're also we're also separate when it's when it's uh, when it needs to be. So, yeah. what happened with Denton's with this yeah. malpractice claim? So, it all began about five years ago. Denton's Washington office, their U.S. office, uh, was working for a company called Revolays, um, which was involved in patent litigation against the Gap. Uh, it, it was uh, inf- it, it accused the Gap of uh, infringing on some of its patents uh, at the International Trade Commission, which is sort of a quasi judicial agency that does patent litigation involving uh, imports. Um, now, one problem here, though, is that the, the ALJ, the, the administrative law judge who was hearing the case, DQ'd Denton's because Denton's Canadian office had represented the gap sort of elsewhere, and he saw this as a conflict of interest, so he, he booted them from the case. Denton's um, was you know not in favor of that, obviously. They said, whoa, hey, we're a Verine, okay? Like, do you not understand how the Verine thing works? <laughs> we are separate. It's a different thing. We don't share finances. We don't share client files. Uh, but the judge wasn't having it. So basically, so Denton's is booted from the case for that reason. And Revelay is the company that they were working for, kind of has to, has to scramble around and find new counsel. It's much more expensive than the arrangement they had worked out with Denton's. They eventually have to settle this ITC case with the Gap. Uh, and because of that, um, you know, they, they, and they just kind of had to cut their losses because the, the litigation was getting too expensive. So the company then sues Denton's in Ohio State Court, basically saying, hey, conflict clearance is sort of like a baseline thing that you have to do yeah. before we bring you onto a matter. You didn't do that. And your failure to do that sort of left us up a creek. Uh, yeah. And, we, and you know, we, we were not able to get sort of fulsome legal representation that we were paying you for. Um, they sued them, like I say, and the jury uh, basically agreed with this view. And the company got a $32 million verdict earlier this month. I mean, bad news for the Verine structure, because it seems like it doesn't work. If <laughs> yeah, it, doesn't it's do just, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, the entire thing is that you 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 have more flexibility, as I was saying. It's almost know. as if you get your cake and you get to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> we should come up with a phrase for that right. or something. Uh, yes. So, yeah, this is important. Um, the, the, the actual litigation involving Denton's is not yet settled. They are going to appeal. Uh, there's a bunch of sort of mitigating facts that might offer more clarity here. But even as we stand now with this with this, with this $32 million verdict against a very powerful, very influential law firm, um, people have started to notice. Um, Denton's is not the only uh, firm that that has this Verine structure. Uh, to name just a couple, Baker & McKenzie, DLA Piper, Squire Patton Boggs, all of them are organized as Verines. And this is sort of, uh, like I said, in, in Abra's story that, that, that I mentioned earlier, she was talking about you know, if this holds, you know, you could definitely see a situation where opposing counsel is just sort of scouting out the like massive client right. roster of like all of these yeah. huge corporate law firms and maybe trying to get them DQ'd. Uh, and so that's something that people are definitely talking a lot a about. Huge, huge liability for yeah. any of these. And and you know, it's not it's not a coincidence that the you know the firms that use this structure are some of the largest law firms in the world. Yeah, yeah, and in some of the busiest, obviously. Um, and so the other thing, sort of at a more structural level, um, that Aber wrote about was that there's always been kind of a soft discussion about updating conflict rules to you know kind of accommodate larger, more complex law firm schemes. 
And so that is, you know, th- that's a discussion that was always sort of in the offing. But the mere presence of a decision like this is definitely likely to to intensify that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're sort of monitoring that 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 part of the industry, you definitely have a lot to look out for. So I want to move us from talking about uh, law firm structures into the actual judicial branch. Yeah. We've talked a ton on this show about Me Too and how that's had ripple effects in all kinds of industries. We've talked about the big ones like media and um, Hollywood. But let's talk about what it's done in the actual judiciary. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I'm bringing today is that last week, more than 70 former law clerks for the late Ninth Circuit Judge Stephen Reinhardt signed this letter commending a fellow clerk for telling members of Congress about sexual harassment she faced by the judge. Mm -hmm. And they're urging changes in the way that the federal judiciary handles harassment. Yeah, this is interesting because, I mean, he's he's passed away. And so there's like we're not we're not sort of talking about legal recourse or or disciplinary action against this judge. But I mean, there's clearly sort of a. A structural problem uh, that these that these women would, would like to see addressed. Yeah, I mean, right up top, I just want to remind everybody yeah. who Judge Reinhardt mm-hmm. was um, and, and sort of set the stage for what we're talking about. So Reinhardt, as I said, passed away back in 2018. He served 38 years on the bench. He was in the Ninth Circuit. He was known as this liberal lion. Um, he made a name for himself authoring opinions about stuff like uh, gay marriage and immigration. He was ve- very well regarded as a jurist. A liberal, a, a liberal stalwart on a somewhat liberal court. So That's right. it just he had a lot of power in that in that role. And I also want to say right up top in the story, we are going to talk about the allegations against him. But obviously, he's passed away. He can't speak for himself. So grain of salt here as we're hearing um, what's been said. But I think it brings up bigger issues that are worth sort of unpacking. So the clerk in question is Olivia Warren. She worked for Reinhardt near the end of his life. Her first day was um, in 2017. And she testified last week at a House hearing about harassment, she says, that started right from the very beginning. She went down through a long list of things that he allegedly did, Um, Some of them stranger than others. The first thing she talked about was this explicit drawing that was taped to her work computer on her very first day. And it was a sign curve, but it had two dots on top. And then the judge who had made the drawing asked her if it was accurate. And then she said that he asked her that question with, quote, a look that indicated whether or not it resembled my own breasts. So we're not talking about good stuff here. It's kind of kind of gross. allegations. Um, But she had a lot of other things. She said it just went from there. The judge often um, talked about her appearance, appeared surprised that her husband would be attracted to her, gave her photos of female law clerks and asked her which candidates were the prettiest and which one had nicer or longer legs. Mm. Uh, He allegedly made disparaging statements about how she looked and also just her views on feminism and and women in the workplace. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, like, like we say, I mean, this is like obviously very serious stuff. I mean, did she make clear that she tried to report this at the time or? Yeah. So a couple of things came up in this, um, testimony to Congress. First, she said that she wasn't just trying to just speak out and destroy the legacy of a well-regarded jurist, but she was bringing it up specifically because of problems with reporting and some other roadblocks to being heard as a judicial clerk. So she said that she, when the harassment was happening, she had asked uh, a judicial integrity officer how to report it confidentially mm-hmm. and was told about ways to report it, but none of them were confidential. So then she was very scared that this would have terrible impacts on her yeah, she career She started prospects. the job. You know, it's, a, it's an important exactly. report. It's a, yeah. So ultimately, she didn't report it. And she, at the hearing, said this. 
I believe the system should make it easy for a law clerk in a moment of distress to know where to go. There must be some better system than one that requires abused clerks to report their abuse to courts or the friends and the confidants of their abusers. Well, and and just to, you know, to underline if people sort of skipped over it when we were talking about it, this was in 2017. This wasn't like 1981 yeah. that we're talking about. Sure. Like, the, you know, the... That there weren't these there aren't these systems right. Yes, and in fact, she said that some of this harassment affected her at the height of the Me Too movement, and that allegedly Reinhardt had spoken out and said that he distrusted all of the reports of people saying that uh, there was harassment. So it really was part of this cultural movement, and that was clearly part of this whole story. Now, you said um, this was one woman who came forward and was speaking to Congress about it. You said that there that there had been sort of a she attracted some, some some supporters in this regard. Sure. So more than 70 of his former clerks uh, are standing behind Warren. Um, to put that in context, that's more than half of the lawyers who clerked for him over 38 years. Oh, wow. yeah. So it's a really large number. Uh, now, I just want to be very clear here. Not all 70 are saying that they were individually harassed. Yeah, sure. n- nor are they corroborating her specific claims because right. they weren't there. Um, right. Many of them weren't there. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a solidarity type of thing. Yeah, and they're saying – most of them are saying in this letter that they believe Warren. And then many yeah. of them are saying they did experience their own sure. harassment or uh-huh. witnessed some other inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. So a uh, former clerk who actually organized this letter in support, her name is Michelle Dauber. And she says she was the only um, mother that Reinhardt ever hired and that he discriminated against her based on that. Mm -hmm. So she said that he regularly belittled her and made sexist comments related to the fact that she had children and then and therefore couldn't work as hard as he wanted her to. Um, She told Law 360 reporter in an email that. He was my hero, and I was desperate to please him. I was the only mother he ever hired, and he frequently announced that it was a terrible mistake to hire me and that he would never hire another mother, which he never did. Oof. Yeah. So, oh, yikes. Um, what, what, one thing that I think grabbed my eye here is that, um, you know, there's another famous story that came out in the post-Me Too years about the Ninth Circuit, about a different Ninth Circuit judge. And you're like, well, you know, I'm sure that these are completely disconnected, and they're not. Nope. Uh, yeah, what you're alluding to is a conservative jurist on the Ninth Circuit, um, Alex Kaczynski. He uh, had to retire in 2017 after allegations that he was also engaging in explicitly sexual conversations with clerks, lewd behavior in his chambers, and that had gone back many years. And the two men, uh, Reinhardt and Kaczynski, were well acquainted and friends. Mm-hmm. So it paints this image that there may just be sort of a an old man club that thinks that they can do any kind any of this kind of uh, antiquated. Yeah. Um, yeah, predatory type behavior. It's not the kind of across the aisle sort of cooperation that we're looking for in <laughs> no. these situations. No. Yeah, I mean, also sometimes when you hear these things about a judge, I mean, I know we've talked about Kaczynski on the show before, have, yeah. and you sort of think, oh, it's a one-off problem, so we're dealing with just one thing. But now we've got two of them on the same very large influential court. Um, there's another federal judge that just announced his resignation this past week. He's in Kansas, and he's going to step down after he was investigated for making sexually inappropriate remarks to court employees. He also allegedly carried on an affair. So several problems there. Yeah. But it it all ties back to what Warren testified about, which is it's really hard for people to report this kind of behavior if there are not confidential ways to do that, ways to ensure that their career won't be negatively impacted. Yeah. Um, after those Kaczynski allegations surfaced, 
the judicial conference, and that's the policy-making yeah. body for the courts. They okayed some new rules about complaints um, that uh, yeah, I, saying, I remember something sexual about harassment. this. Yeah, yeah. So um, they did seem to take this seriously and take a step. But I think what Warren and these seventy clerks that signed the letter are saying that it's not enough, and that more attention needs to be put on how to keep these employees safe. show is something offbeat. And Alex, I know you have a good one today. Yeah. Uh, well, th- there was no shortage of uh, offbeat options this week. Uh, Steven Seagal caught a cryptocurrency wrap uh, this morning. <laughs> yep. the, uh, the Hot Pocket The heiress. Hot Pocket heiress got sentenced oh, sure. in Varsity Blues. Could have done that. But I wanted to um, talk about a really unusual and frankly remarkable case. Um, it's a death penalty case, uh, which is obviously very serious. But very, is, very funny stuff. I know. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, like I say, it is extremely unusual uh, for reasons that will soon become clear. Uh, this is from the Third Circuit. Um, and I want it, it actually is from the end of uh, January. And I wanted to shout out uh, Matthew Stiegler, who runs the uh, CA3 blog. It's a blog that covers the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He wrote this up last month. It, it went under our radar, under a lot of people's radars, from what I could Seemingly tell. Seemingly everyone's, yeah. Um, and I wanted, and we wanted to talk about it. So this is uh, this is a uh, at its heart. This is a story about an oral argument hearing where no argument takes place. Um, <laughs> it involves, the, the, the case involves a guy, a man named Robert Fisher, and he was convicted of murder in 1991 and he was sentenced to death. And he's been basically fighting that conviction and that sentence ever since. And the district court um, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania um, granted him a new trial last year. Uh, the state appealed to the Third Circuit. The case got briefed and the oral arguments were set to go um, at the end of January. And when they showed up for court, um, the person, the, 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 the guy representing the state is Montgomery County Deputy DA Bob Fallon. And as the hearing begins, uh, Fallon has something he uh, needs to get off his chest. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Bob Fallon from the Montgomery County DA's office. Uh, I no longer believe that the lower court committed error. I've spent the past few days uh, working on the case, uh, reading the briefs, uh, doing research, and... Uh, as the hours passed, the less and less comfortable I came with our position, and uh, it dawned on me that if I, a career prosecutor, was not feeling good about these arguments, then uh, perhaps it was not uh, appropriate to come and stand before the court and, and argue and advocate for them. So I am conceding that I now believe that there was no error below. So... So Obviously, he, an extremely remarkable thing. Yeah. So he basically just said, um, ne- "Never mind." He, I, I mean, to hear him explain it, it's just a he had a he has a he has it's, like a, he has like an epiphany it's about a rem- the facts of the case. It's a remarkable amount of candor from someone to say to go before a court and, without and, a doubt and say that without a doubt. Um, and then there's the, the, he has a, a little bit of dialogue with the panel, and then he kind of because it's so unbelievable, he kind of has to clarify the the position again, and then you will see sort of exactly how taken aback uh, uh, the judges are. So you ask us to affirm the district court? Yes, Your Honor. Across the board? Yes, Your Honor. And I apologize to the court for the inconvenience. Uh, I know the court put many hours into it, but sometimes when prepping for arguments, you know, I seek to have a deeper understanding of the case, and sometimes... Uh, at least this case, I came to a, a different 
conclusion than I had. And I, I felt compelled to, uh, to, to take the position that I know. But your I position, am. just to be clear, that, that Mr. Fisher is entitled to a new trial? Yes. Well, can we, we'll be back in two sure. minutes. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the tension is building up, and when you when it when it breaks like that in that clip, it's amazing. It's like, like a balloon it. popping. Yeah, yeah. I mean like we we, we said <laughs> I, it's a death penalty case, a serious thing, but clearly it was like people just had to almost nervous well, laugh. Because you or don't something. know how do you, uh, uh, the the they, thing they didn't know. What I didn't quite understand when I was first listening to it is d- was he going rogue and saying this? But yeah, yeah. apparently, I mean, looking into it later, it, it cl- it's clearly that he had the authority to do this. Yes. But you know, I think everyone was sort of, well, what do we do now? Right. Yeah. It's. Um, it feels less like real life and more like a TV show or movie. Definitely. Um, it's got totally. that very vibe of it's, it's high drama, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But also, I mean, this is what we'd like to see in our justice system, right? Where if a prosecutor realizes when they dig into the facts further that they're not right, mm-hmm. that yeah. they just say that. I think it's almost a little sad that we're so shocked that this is the yeah. first time we've ever heard of this happening. Well, and think about the guy, Fisher. I mean, he's been fighting it for you know, like I said, like over 20 years now. And he's like, you know, he, he kind of like just runs into a benevolent state prosecutor who's right. like, actually, you, you should probably get a new trial. Um, so anyway, uh, fascinating development for a lot of different reasons. Um, the judges return from their from their recess and they say, OK, yes, we're going to grant the request. They eventually handed down a, a, an order a couple days later. Um, and, uh, they sort of were, they, they applauded Fallon, uh, for his sort of forthrightness about his views on the case. Um, and the, the first voice you'll hear is, uh, Judge, uh, Luis Restrepo, and then you will hear, uh, from Judge Stephanos Bebas. Right, well, I'd also like to thank Mr. Fallon and his office, uh, and please, there's absolutely no reason to apologize. I thank you for your candor. Uh, it's really in the best tradition of of a prosecutor to recognize a mistake has been made and, and move forward. Thank Judge you. Beavis? Likewise. I think it's in Berger versus United States, the Supreme Court talked about the prosecutor's obligation not to be winning cases, but to see that justice is done. It's, it's not easy to come in and confess error, but, you know, we don't reject wisdom when it comes late. Uh, and, and we thank you very much for your candor in bringing this to us. So yeah, I it's I'm I'm getting redundant at this point, but it's just a really interesting case. Um, and I mean, I I would read like a long article or a book about this. I mean, seriously about like like you say, Bill, it was not a rogue thing. The 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 right. the, the state arrived at this conclusion by examining the evidence. Uh, and just just fascinating stuff out of the Third Circuit. We don't always get to end the show this way, but justice really was served in this case. It's yeah. really nice. Not offbeat, upbeat. There you go. That's right. Well, thanks for being with me, Alex, and bringing that one. See you guys next week. And Bill. Thanks, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our contributing reporters this week, Andrew Craigie, Corey Atkinson, Jody Godoy, and Abra Coe. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review. Other people can find us that way. For more information about anything we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.